Why do we decide to share our expertise with others? And what makes some blogs and personally curated websites work and others not? We speak with Jan Robert about her blog, Sur La Plat. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Jan Robert. Her popular blog, Sur La Plot, is full of travel, entertaining, and recipes. She's trained the old-fashioned way by stodging in restaurants, she started a baking business called Dark Secrets, and she gardens and entertains, and we get to read about it. So my first question to you is, how is it that you got so interested in food? Mm. Well, spending time in the kitchen with my grandmothers and my mother, and food was just an important part of our culture and gathering together on the weekends for celebrations and holidays and every Sunday for dinner at my grandmother's. And I always gravitated towards the kitchen. That's where all the fun was happening, in my opinion. Everybody else was out playing kickball and, you know, Red Rover or whatever. (laughs) And I wasn't very athletic. So I guess I gravitated towards the kitchen. And And I'm of French and Spanish descent. And so, as you can imagine, the the Creole kitchens that that I learned from really, really expanded not only my repertoire as as a cook going forward and loving to cook, but but also my palate. And so it wasn't unusual for my grandmother to serve blood sausage soup from, you know, the blood sausage that she would get from Terra Nova's on Esplanade Avenue and veal roasts and jambalayas. And, you know, it was always a big ordeal to have a Sunday dinner at my grandmother's. And her mother, my great grandmother, her name was Lucille Bernard. And she was an incredible cook. And so there was an oral history in my family for many of the recipes that were passed down. I mean, I have some old cherished, treasured, scribbled copies of little recipes in my grandmother's handwriting and in my mother's handwriting. But I think everything from Lucille, who was known as Sweet Lou, a granny, was passed down word of mouth. And there was a saying in my family that when somebody would cook something, so, you know, everybody had granny's hand-me-down recipe for griots. And so if somebody cooked it, the ones who knew granny and had really eaten her her cooking would say, "Mm, it's good, but it's not as good as granny's. And that's what was passed down in my family, that granny even though I didn't know her, she died a year after I was born, had this reputation. And that was the gold standard in my family. And was that on your mother's side or your father's side? My father's side. Okay. And so you, you grew up with, with a regular Sunday meal. Was it always with the same grandmother? Yes. Yes. On my father's side, my mother's, 
mom, like my grandmother, my maternal grandmother loved to cook also, but but she wasn't quite the same cook. She was more of Irish and English descent and their, their cooking was a little simpler. My grandfather was from Arkansas and he grew a lot of his own vegetables. And I have a lot of fond memories of that because we grew up next door to them. But but the cuisine was much simpler, whereas I was much more interested and fascinated with what was happening in the kitchen at my dad's mom's house at my grandmother's home. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's all, always interesting. In my family, too, I had one grandmother who really was, you know, she had like 10 things that she made and that was it. And she just made them over and over and over. That was my father's mother. And then my <laughs> grandmother on my mother's side, who was just, she had, she, she was just born with that, that palate. She could go anywhere. She could eat at your house. She could eat at a restaurant. She could eat anywhere and go back home and duplicate it. She just had that, that ability to kind of take it apart in her brain. You yes. know? And, yeah. and know what what it was. And she was the curious one who would go into anybody's kitchen, like neighbors and stuff like that and say, oh, let's just cook together, you know, and she would learn what they had and what they liked and all that. So she was, mm -hmm. she was great in that way. So mm -hmm. we went to my, my father's mother's house, no matter how many people were having dinner, she cooked one chicken so you could have 15 people over and we had one chicken. She made an apple salad with one apple and she made rice. So there was always rice and gravy, but one cup of rice, that's all. And sometimes she would have peas from a can. And mm -hmm. then there was that one of those little cans of peas. Mm -hmm. and that was what she would cook. So my mother always fed us before we went to my grandmother's house <laughs> to eat because she knew that it wasn't right. going to be enough. And so, you know, when you're six or seven, you're mm -hmm. not going to be as aware of, well, I'll just take a tiny bit and whatever. So she wanted to make sure that we didn't <laughs> just eat it all. You know? <laughs> That's terrible. No, we we believed in abundance in our family and there was there was plenty for everyone. But I think also as time went on, I was not I, I had that foundational piece from my family and just that curiosity about food and developing my palate. And then and then a few other things that I feel that influenced me in a really positive way and significantly and kind of guided me to where I am now is that I did have an opportunity to spend a year abroad in France. And so that, I guess that's when I was about a junior in college. And so that really influenced me and pulled a lot of things together. And then I also had an incredible opportunity when we were living in North Carolina for a while. This was more when I was in my late 20s, early 30s, to do a two-year rotation through a very traditional kitchen in a French restaurant. And although I had gotten my master's degree in speech and language therapy, I thought I didn't have kids yet. And my husband was doing a residency and he was never at home. And I thought, first of all, we were in North Carolina. And I wouldn't say this about it now, but then there were not a lot of food choices there. And, and the food 
you know, a lot of times we would go to parties and the only thing to eat would be ham biscuits with that really salty Virginia ham and barbecue. And it was very, very simple. And so I think I was so starved for good food that I did two things. I decided to start teaching cooking at the local YMCA and I did New Orleans brunches and just all of these traditional New Orleans foods just because I was so starved for good food myself. And I entertained frequently so that I could prepare something other than ham biscuits. And then I did this two-year rotation and did all the different stages in the kitchen, very traditional French, as a commis de chef. And I was just an apprentice. And so, you know, I would do, I would apprentice for a while in the sauces and the, you know, garmanger and pastries and just kind of rotated through. And that really pulled all of the travel experiences, my foundation from my family and everything together. I I like to compare it to when people learn music and that classical music can be a really good foundation for learning other types of music. And I felt the same way about this, you know, learning to make all the very standard traditional sauces, you know, just learning to make all the standard pastries and then the you know, the garmangers and pâtés and different things like that. And it was it was really invaluable. And then it turned out I, I ended up being uh, serving as a, a line chef. And that's hard work. <laughs> you know, you really <laughs> about a kitchen and cooking and food when you do that. And particularly, you know, the intensity of it and getting things out on time and just the, the volume of it. It's just a, a whole different way of thinking about food. So so that was, those were all really critical pieces for me in what influenced me in cooking and in the kitchen and and the choices I've made. Did you find that you really honed your your techniques also when you were doing those stages? Because Absolutely. I would I mean I would imagine that I mean most home cooks don't have that mm-hmm. kind of technique developed, you know. So yeah, definitely everything from how to properly chop vegetables to, you know, techniques of sauteing and braising and roasting and steaming and, you know, all of those things. And, and I mean, I ended up, it influenced me also with some of the classes that I taught. And then I I taught classes again in more recent years here in Covington to make sure that people had those in their repertoire stocks you know, how much more does it enhance your gumbo if you create a, a shrimp stock, you know, and you know how to do it properly and the soups that you make if you if you know how to make vegetable stocks and chicken stocks. And I think those are all really critical and important, important pieces of, of the whole learning experience of cooking and, and really learning to be a decent chef and feeling feeling confident in the kitchen and flexible. And like you said about your grandmother, that she can go to places and eat something and then come back and reinvent those things and recreate and reconstruct those. And I I like to do that too. I mean, I, in a way, I don't think I'm as good at it as I used to be. I hate to say it, but I guess our palates age too. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Not I, as sharp as it used to be, but I well, try. You know, I think we do lose taste buds and, and the sensors in our tongues. And it always, I think, is so sad because if you go to a place where there are a lot of elderly people eating, mm-hmm. often the food is incredibly bland because they don't put salt in it. They don't put anything in it. And then they overcook it to make it soft. And you just think, 
you, you already have lost some of your sensing exactly. with age. And so instead of like putting curry in it or ginger or something that could enliven it, they take everything out to make it as bland as possible. And I just right. think, no wonder nobody wants to eat it. You know? Not exciting anymore. I know. And many times that's the only thing people have left is food. It mm. seems to be the last thing that they hold on to is, you know, what they ate that day or what they want to eat. And it may continue to excite them. Either have that or bingo, you know? So, hey, I go for <laughs> <laughs> that's it. that's true so so when so when did you decide that you wanted to have a blog probably about five years ago well it, it really started because oh gosh I'm trying to think when I did this maybe about eight years ago or 10 years ago, I, I wrote a family cookbook just for my family. I only printed about a hundred of them. And, and I wrote it over, over the course of a couple of years. And of course it was called almost as good as Granny's. And it really, it really for me was about storytelling and trying to take a lot of the old traditions and recipes that have been passed down to us. And as I said, some scribbled on little pieces of paper, some were just told to us that we watched in the kitchen to see how things were made. I, I decided to write that up and then gift it to family and, and very close friends because they had enjoyed a lot of these foods, not only in my kitchen, but at my mom's house too and my grandmother's house. And so, you know, I had passed these on even to other people that I knew. So, so I decided to try to capture that and try to capture some of the stories from our family and the recipes. And so I did that and I didn't do a formally bound copy like your cookbook, you know, and have it printed professionally. I mean, I went to a local printer here and, and had it printed, but, but I, I actually put it into binders because I knew I knew that I had more to write after the first year. And so I wanted people, you know, it's, it's small, but, but, but it's got a few, probably a couple of hundred recipes in it. And again, I used a lot of family photographs and told a lot of stories. I had some of my cousins write some of their memories down and put it in. I, you know, called family friends. I collected recipes even beyond my family for things that we enjoyed, you know, that helped us make memories in the kitchen that we cooked together and ate together and shared at the family table. So, so then I guess after that project was finished, maybe a couple of years after that, and I guess food blogs were getting more popular, I decided I wanted to do that and share that with a greater audience. And so I, I started by using a lot of the same stories and some of the family recipes, but you know, the family recipes, many of them are, they're, they're not really the way I eat anymore. <laughs> you know, I mean, I learned from them, but I don't necessarily eat, you know, artichoke balls and, you know, fried, whatever, um, yeah. <laughs> breaded veal pane and, you know, all of these things that my family used to eat all of the time. I do have them collected in our family book cookbook but but it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do and so as I said I've always been influenced by my travels and different places I've lived and so I began to let that influence me and then let other people's cooking influence me I mean we all have favorite chefs and favorite cookbooks and I collect cookbooks and 
and just use those everyday experiences and things that I love and decided to put it together in a blog that I call Sula Plot. And so for about four years, until about a, a year and a half ago, I wrote religiously and would publish a little newsletter every Monday. And and it's all on my blog, sulaplot.com. And so so I am um, and sulaplot just literally means on the table. In French, it really means something else, but a literal translation means on the table. And for me, on that was the table or on the plate. Oh, yeah, on the plate. Please excuse me. Yeah, on the plate. And there's an egg dish that they make in France also called sulaplat. And and so I used a very kind of literal translation of it. And I wanted to I wanted to do that because I wanted it to encompass all of those things that I love because I think cooking goes way beyond just, you know, standing in the kitchen doing what you're doing. I mean, it's about sharing that piece with friends and people. I like to start with the grocery store. I'm one of those weird people that when I travel, I go to grocery stores in other cities, big cities, because <laughs> I, I just find it fascinating. And especially when I'm traveling abroad, you know, I just I just love to go to markets and collect spices and mm-hmm. sneak them back in my suitcase and, you know, and then try to recreate Jeez. all of these ethnic cuisines from from where I've been. So so I that's what I ended up doing with it. So I, I talk a lot about not only the cooking part of it and the stories behind where these recipes come from, but but also how to prepare for that and setting the table and presentation, because I love that whole part of it. As I said, from the grocery store to setting the table to the presentation to the preparation in the kitchen and then serving and sitting, which is the best part with family and friends and around the table. I mean, I just think it's one of the most intimate, beautiful experiences. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I really would like to talk to you about is to, to see like when you're making sauces or you're making stock or whatever, or do you collect all of like, if you're going to make a, if you decide you need to keep in your freezer, some vegetable Mm -hmm. stock or something like that, Mm -hmm. you collect all of the trimmings and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. or like a week or two and then use that or do you just go and buy vegetables for stock no i would i would collect things that i'm using the peelings and things if i'm making a vegetable stock but a lot of times more for chicken stocks and shrimp stocks and fish stocks you know, it. I find it harder to make fish stocks these days because a lot of the seafood markets that I go to don't they have everything. Yeah, and so I usually have to go a couple of weeks ahead of time and say, "Are you getting in any whole fish? Can you fillet? Can you save me the bones?" And fortunately, you know, they know me, so and <laughs> I, people ask for bones. And then with the shrimp, I mean, that's easy. You just go get the shrimp and you peel them and. I have a certain way I like to make my fish stock with sautéing. I think the key to it is sautéing the shrimp shells in a little butter first until they turn really pink and then adding all your vegetables and your water and and going from there. So uh, I always feel like that's the key. And it's just, you know, there's so many tiny things like that that you can do and little tips that you can give people. So in making a shrimp stock, I always tell them the essential ingredient is don't just use the raw shells and put water in or white wine or whatever and all your herbs and and vegetables. 
saute the shells first until they're pink. And then you get this beautiful pinky colored, orangey colored stock also that, that to me has more of a depth and complexity of flavor. That's important. So I, I want to tell you about a stock that got made when I was, I, I was very fortunate years ago to get invited Really, I was a substitute chef, but nevertheless, there was a chef who was going to go to France to a culinary school, and he was a French speaker. He was uh, he was from Louisiana, but he spoke French, and they wanted a French speaker, and he was going to go to Bersasson because they were having a, a a music festival, and that particular year they were featuring. Louisiana. So there were people who were going to be playing jazz and other Louisiana music. They had Zydeco, all kinds of things. And they wanted to have the culinary school have dinners for people to eat Louisiana mm -hmm. food. And so they had invited this man to go over. So he was supposed to go over. And then about two days, maybe three days before he was supposed to leave, he got into this horrible car accident and he oh. wasn't able to go because, he, I mean, he had broken bones. He was in traction. He was really, really badly injured. And so the consul called me and said, Liz, do you have a, a passport? And I said, mm -hmm. yes. And he said, can you go like in two days to, <laughs> to Barcelona? Wow. And of course, I couldn't say no because it was too good of an okay. opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so anyway... While I was there, they had gone online and downloaded in English a recipe for gumbo, and <laughs> they had made it so that when I arrived, they showed it to me, and I thought, oh my God. <clears throat> First of all, it tells you how how cultural recipes are, and all the things they interpreted were just wrong, and so they had put in a stick blender into the gumbo and made it thick like a soup de poisson. And, and so mm -hmm. it was, and also the, the roux was very white. And so it made mm -hmm. the whole gumbo white and thick. And then they mm -hmm. fringed a piece of chicken on top and then they served the, they had rice on the side. And I mean, it was just, it was awful. And I know they looked at my face and they said, okay, this isn't right. You Something's know, wrong. Something's wrong. So <laughs> they said, okay, well, tomorrow you're going to make it so we can learn how to make it. So mm -hmm. I said, fine. They also made this absolutely fabulous thing that they thought was crawfish etouffee. It was absolutely fabulous. It was not crawfish etouffee, but it was <laughs> wonderful. So I told them that, yes, it was crawfish etouffee. <laughs> Because it was so good. <laughs> so when they were making the crawfish etouffee and they were making a stock for the seafood gumbo, they had little crabs that were about three or four inches. They were just tiny little things. And they sauteed them. They threw them in a pan with butter and they sauteed them. And then after that, you know, they threw in some cognac or brandy and then they flamed it. And then they crushed it up and they put it through a, like a Turk's cap kind of thing and, yeah. and just got all the juice out. And oh my goodness, it was wonderful. And I just thought, 
we don't do that. We don't go through that kind of trouble to make our socks, but oh, what a difference it made. It was so good. So I I agree with those Mm -hmm. little things like Mm -hmm. sauteing the shells makes all the difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It does. Absolutely. I did think it was kind of wasteful um, in a sense. So you probably wouldn't do it at home every day and waste all those little crabs and stuff like that. Right. <laughs> you know, that's, that's really an expensive way to, to go, but right. you know, they were, they were learning to be in five-star restaurants. So they mm-hmm. had to learn how to do that, but mm-hmm. it was, mm-hmm. I had the best time. And so when I was making the, the roux, I had all these students standing behind me and I was getting it darker and darker and darker. And I could hear them just under their breaths going, oh, la, la, oh, la, la. <laughs> they were so worried. Then they, they would touch She's me like, up. are you sure? <laughs> you know? Who is this woman? Exactly. But then when they ate it, they said, we uh, have never, yeah. ever had a, a a some something made with a right. roux this dark right because of course they're always wanting this blonde roux mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The raw flavor of the flower mm-hmm. and they said we just had no idea that roux could change the flavor in that way because they use it just to thicken not to actually change flavor right 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 and, and so they they learned something too which was kind of nice yeah oh I, that's wonderful i learned a lot that's a great experience. Good story. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So now that you are, you have this blog established, you know, and you're saying that you aren't quite as religious about putting it out on a weekly basis and whatever. And are you teaching anymore? What, what are you, what are you doing right now? I'm still very active on my Instagram site and it's called Surlaplap blog. And it's on Instagram. And I probably post, if I'm in the country, you know, three or four times a week sometimes. It really just depends. And I really put abbreviated recipes. I don't do a long narrative or a story, whereas I used to do a lot of narratives around my recipes and give a lot of history, a lot of stories. I mean, to give credit where the credit is is due if I'm using somebody else's recipe or if I'm using my own, something I've tasted somewhere and I'm recreating. I, you know, I talk about those things briefly on Instagram. And then I, I really just post the ingredients and the, the methods on Instagram. And I've just found that a lot easier and less time consuming than writing the blog. It's not to say I'm not going to go back to the blog, but I'm retired now. My husband's retired. And when that all happened in the last year and a half and we we had the freedom and post COVID to, to travel more, we began to do that. And so it was difficult for me to prepare that much material ahead of time to keep releasing if I might be out of town for a month or something. And so, so now I just, I'm a lot more flexible and casual about it and I really enjoy it. I really do. And I I think my readers do also. And I, you know, I think at one point, point in time it's not to say that I won't go back and do this because now I have so much material on the blog and so much on my Instagram site also in the future I guess the question for myself is is there another cookbook in me yes. out, you know out there with all of this information I'm compiled I've compiled I I don't know that yet I don't know the answer to that but I certainly do 
have quite an inventory of, of recipes that that I could use to do that with. I don't know. I kind of have to feel that market out and and understand a little bit better what people might be looking for. It seems like there's an uptick in interest in cookbooks again. I mean, I know everybody Googles stuff every night when they want to cook something and they try to keep it simple, but but I still buy cookbooks and I just feel like perhaps it's trending up again if it even went down. I don't I don't have any data on that, so I don't really know, but it's something I need to explore. And I think cookbooks today, people are looking for the story of the food and and mm-hmm. it, your personal twist. It's not quite just recipe, 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 recipe mm-hmm. the way it used to be. So mm-hmm. I want to ask you about travel. So are you traveling everywhere, like to all the places that you ever wanted to go and eat in? Or are you, do you go back to the same places again and again? At this point in my life, I mean, I, I do have my favorite places that I enjoy going back to, but I also feel like it's a bit of a, a race against time. <laughs> I understand <laughs> <And> so, that. <laughs> so the bucket list got a little shorter. I had to modify it a bit. And particularly for those trips that I want to do that are perhaps a little more physical. But I mean both. Once I decide where we're going, then then I certainly do a lot of research on food and the things that I have to eat necessarily when I travel, I'm not a Michelin star restaurant person. I'm just not that person. I never have been. Mm -hmm. I'm more of the kind of discovered as you go along or maybe highlight certain bakeries or certain types of food that are indigenous to an area that I want to taste. And I'll go several places to try those things so I can see if I can duplicate it when I get home. Mm -hmm. But, but I'm, I'm not that much about fancy restaurants when I travel. I mean, maybe if I go to New York or something, but if I go abroad, not so much. So last year we went to Sicily and Croatia and just had an incredible experience. And I know we're, we're leaving in a couple of months to go to, to go walk through the Cotswolds in England Mm -hmm. and then go to the Southern part of Ireland. I've never been there before. I don't, I haven't done any research on food in those areas yet, so I need I need to get on that. But I, I don't I don't really have a lot of expectations, so so it'll be fun. We'll we'll discover many new things, I'm sure. But but yeah, I I really kind of keep it simple, as I said, and not so much about about a Michelin star restaurant as more about mm, eating what's seasonal, eating what's regional. Those are the things that I like to do. And if there's an area that's famous for something, like when we went to San Sebastian in Spain a couple of years ago, that's, you know, a a real gastronomical capital of of the world or in Europe, at least. And and they're known for the pinchos, like tapas, you know, the little appetizers that they eat. And so so we scoured the town and we scavenged all over the place, you know, looking for the the perfect pinchos. And, and then I came home and taught a cooking class on that, you know, on pinchos and tapas and paired it with Spanish wines and other foods. And so I like, I like to do that. Yeah. So I have one more sort of area that I'd really like to talk to you about, and that has to do with food waste. So I've kind of become one of those people that's almost obsessed with food waste and Mm -hmm. really try not to buy more than I need, you know, They're so easy to go to a good grocery or a good market and buy things and then not have time to cook it. And then it spoils in your refrigerator. 
And also, you know, buying something and throwing half of it away just because that's the way you peel it or that's the way you trim mm -hmm. it in order to cook or whatever. And I keep trying to, you know, find new ways to use lemon peels and orange peels and new ways to, to just make sure that all those, if I buy radishes with leaves on them, that I use those radish leaves and I don't just cut them off and mm -hmm. beet leaves and things like that. Have you had that impulse yourself or are you okay with that? No, I think that food waste in this country is just extraordinary. And, and I think that we all need to commit to, to and raise our awareness levels of how we can change that in our own personal lives and in our own kitchens. And, and I think the background that I came from and just the way that, that my, my grandmother in particular cooked and then my mother and the way they managed their kitchens, there was very little waste, very little waste. I mean, they were the queens of, you know, how to use leftovers and transform things into into something else. Oh, I think we live in such a disposable society and it's very troubling to me about the amount of waste that occurs in this country, not just with food, but other things too. So so more I mean, if if I cook and I have a lot, I, I'm accustomed to maybe cooking a lot and then my neighbors love me because because then I, I walk around the neighborhood with little containers and I, I share the wealth. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that can can really make you popular in your neighborhood. And and plus I, I think in my family tradition, food has always been for comfort and caring and and nurturing. And so when somebody new moves into the neighborhood, I always have traditional things. I cook for new people. If people are sick or, you know, have trauma occurring in their lives, I bring them food. Uh -huh. I might not be the best caretaker in the world, but I'm surely a nurturer. So to get back to the food waste, I'm probably late to this game, but I figured, you know, just as we all try to look at our lives and see how we can conserve more and really impact and make a difference in, in this world and particularly in a lot of the climate change issues that we're all experiencing. I finally started composting again. I used to compost years ago. So I am, I did get a little bin that I'm keeping on my countertop and those things that I can't use. I'm, I'm composting again. I, I haven't been entirely successful yet. I just started this process in between rainstorms and freezing and everything else. <laughs> my compost is not heating up like it should, but, but I'll get there. And, and so so I guess just taking it from the notion of sharing, putting it back into the garden, putting it, giving it back to the earth, using it to amend your, your gardens, even, you know, they don't have to be vegetable gardens, they can be flower gardens, mm -hmm. uh, whatever. But, but yeah, just, just trying to decrease the amount of waste of, of so many things in our culture. Yeah, and the landfill, the landfills being so mm -hmm. full of it, and all, right. all the plastic sort of ripple effect of the mm -hmm. of, of it is just really, really bad. Well, Jan, I want to thank you so much for being with thank us you. today. It's You're been welcome. Kind of fun to talk to you. Really fun to see you and reconnect again. And thank you for the invitation to join you on the tip of the tongue. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, a part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Subscribe to this and other food and drink related podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to keep up with me, Liz Williams, you can subscribe to my Substack newsletter, also called Tip of the Tongue, for more information about this podcast, recipes, and just what is going on. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.